Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and today I have the pleasure of having Nate from Pedagogy Non Grata join me again today. And we're going to be talking about teacher education because when it comes to the right to read, um, we're talking about making sure that our kids get the instruction that they need to become fluent and competent readers. The problem with that is historically the teacher education programs have not been teaching the information that educators need and teachers need to learn about structured language and literacy and the science of reading. I actually pulled out my textbooks from my teacher education program recently just to take a, a look about um, you know what they had in them and I was yeah, I remember going through my teacher education program and like, well, you know, there's a lot missing from here. But now that I have the knowledge that I have, I'm like, oh, well, you know, the simple view of reading isn't in either of them. And they were, they were published way past the 1980s when the simple view of reading first came out and they didn't have Scarborough's reading rope in them either. Now I graduated in 2010 from my teacher education program. So the Scarborough reading boat might've been a little bit new because it was just done in 2001, I think. Um, <laughs> I'm asking dates, come on. You always quiz me, Catherine. I know, I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's information that teachers need to know to understand how their students are going to be learning how to read and how to figure out where problems exist. So today, Nate and I are just gonna talk about some of the things that are missing and the current teacher education programs and what we'd like to see for professional development opportunities because yes we can change the instruction teacher education programs for future teachers but that doesn't help teachers that are already certified and practicing their teaching and it's going to take about 30 years to have that turnover so that they'll have had the science of reading or structured literacy in their professional development or their um, pre-service training for us to see it in every classroom. So hi, Nate, how are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be here back on your show today. Thank you. So when we look at the right to read report, there are um, recommendations that are specifically talking about revising the future education programs because when the uh, review of the teacher education programs in Ontario, which you currently uh, live in, uh, they saw that this is missing from the teacher education programs. And I know here in BC, we're not seeing it in the professional developments that are offered. And it also is something that is not in all the teacher education programs across the province. This is information that we need to make sure that all the students get and, sorry, all the teachers get, all the pre-service teachers get and all the current teachers get. Um, so what are you seeing over in Ontario? Well, I'm not taking any teacher courses right now, although I, I do have friends who are and I've, I've talked to them about it. I know I, I graduated in 2012, so I graduated two years after you and I was specifically trained as a language teacher as one of my teachable subjects. Um, and I then went on to get my reading specialist program 
um, really not that many years ago. I think two or three years ago, I got my reading specialist and I never heard the word uh, phonics. I never heard the words phenemic awareness. I never heard the words fluency instruction um, in any of my teacher training programs. In fact, like these are topics I've researched and written about quite a bit. And uh, I only learned about those topics through my, my own research, um, which I would argue these are some of the things that should be the foundation of our, our instruction as teachers. So I think it, it is problematic that it's, it wasn't taught. Uh, I do know, I heard recently that Queens University is teaching um, science of reading um, in their teacher education programs. And I'm sure that we will see universities adapt to it, but I, I have also heard that some universities are hesitant and I'm sure it'll be a school by school basis um, issue and it'll be slow to evolve. Yes, of course. And one thing that you do a great job at is looking at these meta-analyses. So I know there's comments about the reading wars and how it was whole language and then phonics. But when you look at the research, it's not so much that it's a pendulum. It's we're not trying to say it's going to swing this way and then swing back. We're trying to say that this is how the brain learns to read. And if we look at the research when it comes to interventions and how our students are making progress, we need to listen to that. Yeah, and I, I think that's part of the, the problem is this viewpoint that education is a pendulum. And I think people view science this way. You know, I, I, so many times I've heard the, the line that like one study says this, one study says that, I don't know what to believe. And this is just, it, it, it's representative of the fact that we don't get training on how to really understand science in schools. Um, and that's no offense to teacher, I'm a teacher. Uh, and the media does a really bad job of reporting on science too, because it often reports like, well, one study came out this week saying this, we're saying X. And the reality is that especially in like a social science, where we're looking at something as complex as human behavior and human learning, like the results are always full of variability and you can't really look at any individual study. One study is almost meaningless. Um, you have to look at it inside the context of other research in the area. And this is maybe other teachers might, might, might disagree with me on this, other, other people in the science reading community, but I think we need to make part of the instruction on how do we know what we know in this research area so that we prevent it from just becoming another pendulum and another swing movement. Because I've, I think I've seen too much of like this fad base um, logic to teaching, like this is in right now, this is what we're doing. And it's, I really wanna see us move away from that and move towards, this is what the evidence says. And as that evidence evolves, we will change our practice and improve it over time, but we won't be dramatically shifting back and forth to changing tides. Uh, and I really think that should be the, the first thing that gets taught, not how best do we teach actually, but how do we know what we should teach? Maybe that's my bias here as someone who reports on this type of thing. But. Yes, of course. And I, I know um, when it comes to teacher education training, I mean, realistically, these programs are quite brief. You know, you're getting a year, maybe 18 months of this pre-service training after you've done a degree. And when you go into these programs, you know, the requirements will be like two courses in English, four courses in this, five courses in that, depending on what you need. Now, the important thing to note is when you're doing a bachelor's degree, uh, which often leads into these teacher programs, the things that you're getting in an English course at university 
are not the same things that are needed for teaching a child to read. I know when I went through my teacher education program, the idea was that they were just going to learn how to read on their own. And we were taught skills to do once they were reading. As a dyslexic, this really troubled me because I knew that students didn't read on, learn how to read on their own. And I knew to, it took a lot of work. And when I raised these concepts in class, I was shot down. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in a perfect world, if I were gonna design a teacher education introduction to reading course, I definitely start out by focusing on the, the theories that have held the test of time. Right. When we're looking at Tumner and Goff's simple view of reading, where reading comprehension is a product of word recognition and language comprehension. And if there's a problem in one of these, it's going to affect their ability to read. It's most likely that there's going to be a problem with both. So we need to then look deeper at how to analyze those skills. And then when we look at Scarborough's reading rope, we can see how those skills break up. Now, once teachers or pre-service teachers understand these two concepts, they can go then to look at the research as to best practices for helping support those skills. Yeah, I, I would almost present something not to, to, to oh, criticize no. the simple reading of you. I just, I tend to think of it slightly different in that I think there are basically three foundational reading skills that need to be learned first um, before we even really start reading. And that's excluding letter recognition. Um, letter recognition is, is pretty simple, to be honest, but it is something that needs to be looked at, obviously. But I, I look at it as sort of phonemic awareness, um, phonological knowledge or phonics, whatever you want to call it. There seems to be some debate over what we call that. Graphing um, phoneme correspondence. Form graphing correspondence, yeah or um, uh, morphology. And I, I think the, there's some actual debate within the, the science reading community and the intellectual community as to how much and when of those three things. But generally speaking, I think students are gonna need to sum of all three and should be taught some of all three. And I think that's sort of the foundational thing. And then, um, you know, vo vocabulary is one of these weird things that I think is, is probably taught more intuitively in the sense that like, um, you know, students do and children do learn words and what they mean just from talking to adults around them. I, I don't know. I hear some, I think we saw some debate recently, even on this in this last week, for some reason, on how much vocabulary to teach. Personally, I think, yeah, we obviously need to teach some vocabulary. And I would sort of look at the high frequency sight words as, as things that should be probably taught. But at the most part, I think that first instruction that and that most important instruction is that pre-K, K, grade one time. And that really probably should be focused on those foundational ideas. So I would love to see like reading programs or reading instruction programs start with um, uh, some overview of what that should look like in a classroom. Yes. And when, when you're talking about vocabulary, one of the best ways that students learn vocabulary is through reading and through exposure. Now, if we have students that can't read, and aren't able to read as much as their peers, then we're gonna see that Matthew effect, right? Mm -hmm. So where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer or don't make much of a difference because the, and again, I forget 
the the citation for this um, study, but a proficient reader in grade three reads more words after school in three days than a poor reader does within a year. So think about the number of vocabulary words they get from just reading those literacy rich texts, whether they're reading Percy Jackson or um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, like any of those book series, Harry Potter, the, the language that's available in those books is so much richer than everyday spoken language. And even the language that they're getting gaming or uh, watching television or Netflix, whatever it's considered now, because you get so much when you're seeing things that doesn't need to be described that when you're reading a book, you don't have. So they need to describe the background and the setting and the feelings and the emotion. Whereas when you're viewing it, it's not the same. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I, you know, I think it's just, I'm going to lose my own thoughts, but I, I think it's, it's a lot of it's just about efficiency too, right? Like, yes, we do need to teach some vocabulary directly. Um, but you know, there's so many words out there, you know, we might have 20,000 words that the average English reader knows. Uh, I've been studying French. My, my French vocabulary is actually in the several thousand words. And yet I still struggle with French like a lot because it's nowhere near enough. And just memorizing words is a really slow way to learn a language. And because kids tend to learn uh, oral language through sort of osmosis, if we can give them a way of sort of decoding unfamiliar words, it's a way more time efficient strategy for their instruction than say uh, trying to teach them one word at a time. So that's why I really think that has to be the start. Yes, um, and I'm sure there's no disagreement among that uh, in your audience, if I'm being honest. But yeah, well, and then that importance of the morphology and the morphology instruction—that's actually a way that we not only can we help students read, but we can al also help their vocabulary yeah. by helping them understand what those morphemes or parts of words that have meaning to them. Yeah, uh, especially as we get into the higher grades and the academic content, because academic words typically have a Latin or Greek background, which is where those morphemes come from. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think uh, I was reading an article uh, sort of co-written by Tim Tan and Dr. Uh, Pete Bowers on this the other day. And I, I think they raised a really good point. If you focus on the root words and morphology, that's a great way to teach meaning um, because students can access so many words by just understanding the root words um, in the English language. Uh, I've, I was also, I was looking at a meta-analysis by Galushka, I think it was 2020 on the topic, and they showed better results for spelling with phonics, or sorry, for uh, morphology with uh, spelling, but they showed better results for reading with phonics. And I, I actually think that that really makes sense when you think about it, because uh, phon or phonics gives you the ability to sound out an unfamiliar word, but it, it doesn't tell you what is the correct um, letter correspondence for a phoneme. Um, when you have to write an unfamiliar word, whereas morphology does. So it makes total sense. Although I think the morphology is more complicated. So personally, I, I think that should be, but uh, there's a lot of academic debate on that, so. Well, and when we're looking at teacher education programs and professional development, I think it is easier to provide instruction on phonics 
or teaching grapheme phoneme correspondence than it is to do so in morphology. Morphology, there are a lot of morphemes, but it's, it's easy to access. Um, but when we're looking at trying to get the biggest bang for our buck on the professional development and the teacher education program, especially when you have um, programs that are focusing on you know, the uh, primary years or the middle school years. Well, if you're doing a primary years uh, program, you definitely need to make sure there's the information about the screening methods, the phonological awareness, the um, grapheme phoneme correspondence, and the basic morphology when we're talking about suffixes such as ing, ly, ed, even plural. There are rules and things that we can teach students that are going to help them out, uh, and especially uh, the ION, uh, which is often taught as a spelling pattern, T-I-O-N or S-I-O-N, right? So when we introduce these things to students young, then they start learning and having that love of learning and understanding more about how words are put together. Now, when we're looking at the intermediate years, we also need to make sure that the teachers understand, hold on. This is the joy of live broadcasting. You get these sweet moments. Do you think, do you think I should make eyebrow movements at everyone so I keep them entertained? This is my special skill that I use to entertain students, guys. I need to go grab a Band-Aid. Nate, why don't you talk about one of your recent meta-analysis? <laughs> sure. Uh, why don't I instead, sorry, because I'm just trying to think off of the, the topic here. Why don't I instead just really talk about morphology for a quick second? Because there was some debate. I got into a little bit of a, a Twitter debate onto this today, yeah, two days ago. Um, and I think some of this, uh, the problem, the challenge with morphology, I think the greatest challenge is the complexity of it. You know, like there's only 44 commonly used sounds in the English language. So it's really easy to teach teachers 44 um, sounds and their, their common letter um, correspondences uh, to teach the students. It's really hard to teach them all of the morpho or morphology in the English language. Um, and then when you think about it or you look at it um, in terms of curriculum, there's actually very little for resources out there. Uh, I saw Dr. Bowers was asked about, is there a curriculum word list that he would recommend for teachers? And he didn't have one. Um, so it's so easy and super easy to implement uh, a phoneme curriculum, but it's really difficult to, to introduce um, a morpheme curriculum as of this moment. Um, and I think part of that is just teachers don't have uh, linguistic training on, on morphology. So one of the things I was gonna say as a suggestion, I would love to see it that teachers get training before they leave school on the linguistic rules behind morphology. Cause that's something, you know, despite having studied the validity of morphological instruction and uh, the efficacy of it, I don't have a ton of personal knowledge on morphemes myself. Um, so I know how difficult it is. And I, I feel like I am a teacher who's a little more interested in this, this area. And yet I still know that's a deficit of mine. So trying to take the average teacher and convince them like, okay, now you're going to go out and memorize 400 morphemes. And then you're going to teach it to your students. 
that's quite challenging. Um, and I, I know some people suggest, well, why don't we teach morphemes implicitly then and make it like an inquiry process? Um, and I'm probably gonna get myself in trouble here, but I mean, if we look at the NRP meta-analysis, it showed that the best language instruction was systematic and explicit. And I don't know if an inquiry process is the most efficient in the long term. I think probably the most efficient is we start training teachers systematically on morphology and then have them train their students. Um, but I don't know that we're equipped to do that in the immediate future. What do you think, Dr. Kaplan? I think there's a lot that needs to be done to improve our teacher education programs. And I think we need to go at it in a systematic way. Focusing on making sure that they have the basic understanding of all the components of language, because the English language is a very complex language. And I don't really like typically like to drop names of products or anything, but I find um, uncovering the logic of English to be a very good book. That's so funny. I, I reviewed the logic of English on my website and there's no research specifically on their program. But I had to say, when I, I read it, I was like, this is the best laid out program I've ever seen from a, log from a logical perspective. So I don't have any proof that I'm right that it's the best program. But from a qualitative perspective, I don't think I've seen a better reading program than the Logic English. But you know what? There could be research out that comes out next year proving that my, my qualitative thesis was complete garbage. So take that with a grain of salt. Well, I just think that every teacher should have that book available to them to reference because it really says, okay, this is why a word is spelt this way. And these are things that have been missing from our instruction and giving a student the answer, well, it's spelled that way just because it is, doesn't really help them. It doesn't stick in their mind. So the more that we can do to help them, the better. And I know, you know, one of the ones that I always like to bring up for uh, spelling is when we're looking at the sound and it's a science word. Well, it's going to be represented by PH instead of F because if it has, if it's a science word, then it's likely tying its roots back to Latin and Greek. And the alphabet that they used did not have the letter F. So it's represented by the PH. And once you tell students that, it sticks in a lot of their heads and it gives them a reason for knowing why we use the pH, right? Dolphin, well, that's the name of an animal. A lot of our names are old, so it's likely pH. Telephone, photograph. These are all things when we look at words and give them that understanding of just saying, well, you try, learn it, memorize it, figure it out. Giving them that strategy helps. You know, uh, you came on my podcast, I think about two years ago, and I had never heard what morphology was before our, that conversation. And you told you explained that to me and used that same example. Yeah. And I've now been using the same example ever since as my like first go-to example of what is morphology. Uh, but I think that's like a good point as to like how limited our, our instruction has been for those, someone who is not only a teacher, a reading teacher, but a specialist in reading, um, who was studying the science of reading to not know what morphology is. Like, that's, it's embarrassing for me, to be honest, but see how I mean. Yeah, 
But so we need to make it so that there is this learning environment to do it. I know years ago, I started doing a Morphe Monday blog post where I went in and, you know, spoke about a prefix, a, a root and a suffix. And I know there's argument whether we should be calling them, you know, free bases and bound bases and whatever. It doesn't matter. The, the concept is we need to teach these elements of words. And when we do that, it gives teachers an understanding. Now, there are basic ones that are very helpful to include uh, that we can teach in that teacher education program and say, look, these are the ones that you're gonna wanna go over in you know, the primary years. And these are the ones that you can do in the intermediate years. But at the same time, there's a, a lesson that I really enjoy with kids in those elementary years, even in kindergarten or pre-kindergarten, where you can teach by, or sorry, uni, by, try, and cycle. Now, you're not expecting them to understand the, selling, the spelling of these words, but understanding that uni means one, by means two, and try means three, cycle means wheel, these kids are likely gonna already have a bicycle in their vocabulary and a tricycle, maybe not a unicycle, but you can take pictures of them and show them and say, well, look, this has one wheel. It's a unicycle. A bicycle has two wheels. So it's a tricycle, three, or sorry, a bicycle has two wheels, so it's a bicycle. And a tricycle has three wheels, so it's a tricycle. Can we think of other words that have tri? Oh, triangle, three sides, binocular two eyes, right? Uniform, one way. I'm glad all the distractions are coming on your side today. <laughs> what kind of dog do you have? I have a boxer. Oh, nice. They're very cool. Yeah. So these are all things that we can do to help our teachers and understand, but realizing things like structured word inquiry and teaching morphology is not something that beginning teachers are necessarily gonna be able to foster and develop right away. But as you learn more, you can help you know, your students learn that much more. Now, when it comes, we've spoken a lot on that word recognition side of things, a little bit on the vocabulary, but the other things that we need to look at is fluency and comprehension. Now, the big concept about fluency is automaticity, and we want kids to build automaticity in their word recognition by building knowledge in their visual word form area or through orthographic mapping. Now, those are very jargon-rich terms, but Basically, what it's saying is this is where the student gets it in their brain so they can recognize it within a fraction of a section, second that allows them to read fluently. And then once children are reading fluently or once an individual is reading fluency, that gives the opportunity for them to comprehend what they're reading because working memory and that's the memory that we're using in our brain to hold all this information is very limited in its capacity so if a student is putting all of their effort into decoding 
and figuring out what the word says, it's too difficult for them to remember what they're reading. Yeah, I think this is sort of an underserviced area of the, the research and instruction actually is in fluency. I feel like people don't want to really talk about fluency because um, I find that the, the balanced literacy crowd or the, the older movement of reading instruction was weirdly focused on comprehension instruction. And I, it, it makes sense as to why, because oftentimes reading instruction or reading level difficulties show up in comprehension. Um, so every, and I get this question like all the time, like, oh, such and such student is not um, comprehending. How do I best help them? And my, my answer is always like, how do you know it's a comprehension issue? Have you checked their decoding? Have you checked their phonemic awareness? Um, like that, that should be the very first thing. And I think you have to be really efficient in how you check. It's not good enough to be like, I think they can decode. And I often hear people say that. It's like, no, 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 no. You have to go give them a decoding test and you need to check. And you need to check that like, when I say like, do, can they decode? That doesn't mean they know 36 out of 44 phonemes. That should mean they know all of their basic phonemes and they know them by heart. Uh, that's when you start worrying about comprehension. Um, and even then there's other things to worry about, but like I found the, the balanced literacy crowd got really focused on that. So like when I was doing my instruction, I got like, everything was about comprehension. Um, and then the science of reading community has been really focused on, uh, I think historically on phonics. And I think they're starting to become much more interested in morphology and that's the burgeoning area of research. And it's really interesting, but fluency is sort of this forgotten child that nobody ever seems to talk about. Um, but it's sort of that, that bridge gap area between sort of, you know, early and late stage reading, because we have these students who they know their phonemes, they can decode words, but they decode words slowly. So it's hard for them to retain meaning because they don't have that automaticity yet. And I think we need to do specific types of instruction that help give them that automaticity um, so that they can, we can start to really focus on things like comprehension and more advanced writing techniques and grammar. Yeah, well, and I think what you're saying is true about the whole structured literacy or science of reading uh, movement. And I think that Seidenberg just did a presentation that's kind of gone, gotten a lot of attention about this. And it's like the bang what bandwagon that everybody's jumping on to the phonics and phonemic awareness, which is hugely important. But the problem with that is that they're not understanding that there's more to it. And that's where all the people who are opposed to structured literacy or science of reading are saying, well, look, you're forgetting all this. But no, it's not forgetting, you know, fluency, vocabulary and comprehension. It's saying that those are important, but it's not taught in the exact same lesson. Yeah, I agree. And we want to work on you know, explicitly teaching those comprehension strategies, like digging deeper and not just going for surface level, level understanding of texts, because that's what kids need. And yes, there are some kids that pick it up on their own, but there are that need that explicit instruction saying, okay, so this is what the text is saying, but what do you think? Do you think it actually means that? Mm -hmm. And you know, you see these in, in kids with autism where they take it at face value and they don't have that perspective taking. So they can read a book and they assume that everything that they know as the reader, all the characters understand because it's been given to them. And 
we need to try and figure out where the student is at in their comprehension journey and provide the support. One way that we do that is through modeling in the classroom, but there is opportunities to explicitly teach it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think a lot of this has to do with time and place too, though. Yeah. Uh, and I I've I think part of the argument of, of balanced literacy was that, well, we should be teaching everything in equal amounts uh, throughout the, the reading career of a student. And I don't think that makes sense. You know, I really think kindergarten, pre-K, the focus needs to be phonemic awareness and phonics. Um, whereas, you know, grade one, I think the focus needs to be shifting more towards phonics and away from phonemic awareness. And then we can really start to add things on in grade two if that instruction was done properly. Uh, whereas I think we need to slowly increase the comprehension. I'm a grade eight teacher. I don't do a lot of foundational instruction. You won't see a phonics lesson in my classroom. If, a co if I have a struggling student, I will teach them phonics. Or if uh, a kid asks me a question about a word, like, why is it spelled that way? Or like, why does it sound that way? Well, then we might have sort of a, a structured word inquiry approach to it. But there's no like uh, time for our morning phonics in a, in a grade eight classroom. Um, most of my work is around writing and, and comprehension. Um, and I think it makes more sense to have it sort of, we teach this at such and such time than we teach everything all at once because it's too much. I, I don't like, I don't, I, and I'm not, and I think people get caught up when I say this. I'm not saying don't ever teach a grade one comprehension, but I don't know that you need like a comprehension lesson plan. Like it would never be like, today's my comprehension lesson plan, or like I'm going to have like um, a 40 minute period dedicated to comprehension. I think maybe read a story to your grade one class and ask them some oral comprehension activities to give them a little bit of practice. But I wouldn't be doing like reciprocal teaching um, in grade one or giving them like written comprehension work. Yeah. Well, and the other thing to note is, yes, you're a grade eight teacher, but as your knowledge about etymology and morphology increases, you can offhand, you know, have these comments like, you ever notice that come and came have similar spelling patterns, but, you know, you don't say comb and came. It's come and came. And that's because of the vowel shift. And the reason why there's the E at the end is to show the relationship between these two words. And those are those little facts that as teachers learn more about the language and how our spelling system works, they can just throw those in off the cuff. And, you know, there's some great um, individuals out there that are really passionate about the morphological awareness and the etymology, and they have some amazing resources. But it's a matter of being realistic about our expectations for teachers and saying, okay, here's your foundation. Here's where we want to provide you with that continual knowledge. And um, I see that one of our viewers is asking about a structured program recommending to teach. I was low-key trying to look through my resource to see if I could find a recommendation for them while you were talking. Yeah, so as it all depends what you have in your classroom already. So I, I've had conversations with others uh, looking at, have I done a K classroom yet? I can't remember. I know I've done a grade one and two, but it depends on what you have available because yes, there are programs out there, but 
what you want to look for is a specific scope and sequence. Now there are different ones, but you want to make sure that it's addressing the different phonemes, right? And the graphemes that represent them. And a lot of the kindergarten programs just work on the letters A to Z and they don't look at the digraphs. Well, I think it's very important for a student to learn that the letters TH make the sound or M before that they know some of the other letters that aren't as common in our alphabet. And there's other digraphs like CH and SH that are ones that we can't, like if you're reading the word the, you can't go t, uh, or eh and figure it out. But if you know that TH says mm, and that sometimes at the end of a word, E can have the uh sound or the schwa sound, then you know the, they can sound that word out. So you want to move away from teaching those dolch sight words as words that they have to memorize and give them an explanation for why words are spelt there the way that they are. And you can do this very quickly. You don't need to focus on one letter a week. Uh, you can teach them, like there's, there's a common um, scope and sequence. So the first six letters that you teach are S-A-T, P-I-N. Now, if you start with those sat pin letters, there are more than 40 real English words that are very likely going to be in these students' vocabulary that they're going to be able to stand out and recognize. So in kindergarten, we want to start out with that phonemic awareness tasks, such as blending and segmenting and counting phonemes. So I would be saying, Okay, let's count the number of sounds in a word like cat, k, at. So there's three phonemes, right? But if we're doing the sat pen, then I'd say, let's count the number of sounds in pat, p, at. So you can do this. Um, I would recommend taking a look at the, let me just look at my replays quickly because there was a great one um that I did a couple weeks ago with um who was it I will put the replay in the link um Dorothy McKay and it shows a one hour block in her structured literacy classroom. And she takes you step by step through this process. Um, a great resource for um, phonological awareness is Haggerty. Now I know there's a lot of um, debate right now. Debate about Haggerty and the use of Haggerty. Uh, but it has its time and place. And as long as we make sure that there isn't a component of teaching the letter sound correspondences, and we're not just doing this, but it, I'd argue it's a 10 minute lesson and it gives teachers the information that they need so they're not having to create this on demand. And as long as you're being sensitive to whether the words the pronunciation of the words where you live is appropriate. 
So if there's any accents or dialects, taking that into consideration, I think it can be a tool that can be a very effective part of your instruction because it has everything for you. I think one of the, the biggest problems that we're seeing on this, you know, the shift is expecting teachers to come up with this information all on their own and not recognizing the amount of time and effort that takes. And we don't want teachers to just be going to teachers pay teachers at typing in phonemic awareness activities and downloading them because they're not necessarily correct. And that's why, again, the right to read um, report has specific recommendations through going through curriculum and um, resources that have been vetted so that teachers can be aware of them. Yeah. I, I'm going to be honest, like personally, I don't, I don't love programs um, because I feel like a good teacher is going to individualize their instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going to be following like um, a master program where like, oh, it says today I teach this. Like personally, like when I teach, it's like, for example, I taught ESL students this summer. So I had my 44 phonemes and that was like the very first thing after letter recognition I was teaching them. And um, we just worked through those 44 phonemes. I had like flashcards made up. I had all these games made up that I made myself and, uh, we practiced them every single day. I didn't do this. Like this week we're learning the letter a no, like we practiced all the phonemes all the time. And I like monitored the progress, like on a weekly basis. Like I had a test every week I gave them and, uh, I just checked at the end of each week. Did they do, do they know their 44 phonemes yet? Um, uh, that being said, I have been reviewing language programs according to their research results. Um, and I did notice that Jolly Phonics had really high results specifically for kindergarten to grade three and for ESL students. Now I have not used the program myself. Um, I have actually even like physically seen the program. And one of the criticisms I've heard of the program is it doesn't include enough phonemic awareness instruction. Um, so if you were to use uh, that program, I would maybe consider adding phonemic awareness, but the research results are really high. That would just, but if that's only if you wanted to use a program, that would be my, my two cents. But I'm personally much more in the camp of if you understand the curriculum on a deep level yourself, you can, you can improvise a lesson. You, a friend of mine once said, if you give me a, a stick and some sand, I can teach a kid how to read. I think once you know it on a deep level, you don't really need to rely on a program. You should be more tailoring it to your your students' individual um, knowledge gaps. Of course, but when you're a teacher in the field trying to get all this, it is helpful to have programs to fall back on as you're learning these skills and building this knowledge. So I I do think there is a, a time and a place, but realizing that no one program encompasses all the components of structured literacy or uh, the science of reading, that it it is a changing field, but anything that you can do to increase your understanding of the core concepts and understanding how to do this is a, a key component, like learning, taking the time to learn the 44 English phonemes and the most common um, 
graphemes that are associated with them. Like there's more than 200. And if you're working in a kindergarten classroom, that's not something that you're going to have to know and realize that through experience, it's going to get better and time being emerged in it is going to get better. But if you're using these um, scope and sequences for teaching the phonemes, and when you're teaching at the kindergarten level, I do think there's a limit that you can teach uh, in a particular day. Like I wouldn't add any more than two new grapheme phoneme relationships in a day when they're just beginning, because you don't want to overload. But you can pick up the pace quickly as they learn. And I personally believe that using a decodable text or a controlled text in those beginning stages is really important because you're giving students the opportunity to practice the skills that they have. So when you look at those leveled readers or the predictable text, you're actually asking them to read words that they don't know and they don't have the skills to read. So that's gonna impact their ability to do this and draw their attention from focusing on words that they need to learn. They're gonna be looking at the pictures and that's the problem with some of the online programs that we get subscriptions to and those level texts that we see in every classroom. Uh, and you know the Fontes and Pinnell readers, they're not appropriate for kids at the kindergarten level to learn how to read. Yes, they, they can figure out you know, from the pictures, but we're not doing it in a structured, systematic, explicit manner that's going to help them once the pictures are gone. And once you have to read those harder books that it's not predictable. Yeah, I think in, in terms of programs overall, like, I, I would say for a program to really prove its efficacy, it needs to have a peer-reviewed meta-analysis and uh, it also needs to show high results in that peer-reviewed meta-analysis. And to the best of my knowledge, there, uh, there's really only one program that fits that description. Um, and the meta-analysis only looked at a handful of studies. It's over 20 years old and um, it's one program. So I, I would not feel comfortable being like, this is the only good program out there, but it's just, the research is so limited. And a lot of the research for whatever reason shows low results. So I think uh, that's why I think you're better off developing your own knowledge, but it definitely, I definitely think it can be a useful starter tool to have something, some bank of resources, especially if you're a first year teacher. I know like when I first started teaching, um, I wasn't too aware of the science of reading yet. In fact, I wasn't aware, all aware, what am I saying? And uh, I was going into each classroom day being like, how do I fill the hours? Like, oh my God, I have to plan for six hours. Um, and I, this is a common thing you hear from newer teachers, but I feel like a lot of like more experienced teachers will say like the opposite. They're like, oh my God, how do I get enough time to like teach all the things I want to cover in a day? Yeah, and there is a lot to learn. Um, and in order for us to do that, we need to figure out the best way of doing things. And I think it's important that when we look at the teacher education programs, we provide more time 
to the language arts, um, you know, looking at reading instruction, writing instruction, spelling instruction, uh, screening, and the mathematics. Mathematics is a very uh, poorly thought of field. And we still have a lot of teachers like, oh, you know, I don't, I'm not really comfortable with math. I don't really understand it. So I'm just going to do the, the bare minimum. But there is so much more that we can do to help our students instead of saying, oh, you know, I'm not really good at that. This just is how you do it. And I think currently, at least the practices that we're using in BC aren't providing that explicit teaching that's necessary for the vast majority of students in mathematics. Uh, and we're trying to teach too many different strategies for one skill. So teaching four different ways to do subtraction of a two-digit number, I think while I understand the concept of giving students different ways to do things, it adds too much confusion. Yeah, I, it's funny. I, was, I had a conversation about this topic with Dr. John Starr, um, who's brilliant. And uh, multi, the, the strategy of teaching kids multiple procedures to solve a math problem is referred to as multiple heuristics within the literature. And it's actually like, possibly the highest yield strategy um, for teaching students math. But I was, I was trying to do it myself and I was teaching three or four procedures and my kids were getting lost. And I talked to John Starr about it. And he's like, no, no, you're doing it wrong. Two, two procedures. Uh, there's a logic behind teaching two. And it, it, it really does make sense for a couple of reasons. Like it makes sense for the fact that one, um, you're showing the students an alternative way of doing it in case the first way just doesn't click with them. Like if the first way doesn't click, Here's an alternative way. Um, but it's also helpful, I think, on a conceptual level, because if you can understand two different ways to solve a problem, it sort of gives you a better conceptual understanding of what's going on on a, like a mathematical rule level, rather than just like, here's your algorithm, plug your numbers in. But I think we, we generally speaking, we see the same thing in math as we do in reading, that it's it, uh, instruction works best if it's systematic, if it's explicit, and that we need foundational instruction at the beginning, with less and less foundational instruction over time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I'm writing a book on this topic right now, actually. I'm, I'm like three quarters done. My plan was to be done the book by, by August. And I think I'm gonna be done the rough copy within like two or three weeks, which is great. Oh, wonderful. I'm awesome. way too busy. <laughs> I gotta stop working so much. But when it's your passion, it's hard, right? That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've done a, a great job of talking about, you know, those factors that we think are important in the teacher education programs and professional developments. But just as a quick review, what we've been saying is that in the primary years, we want to make sure that the teachers understand the importance of phonological awareness, including phonemic awareness. We need to have the explicit teaching of phonics or the grapheme, which are the letters and the phonemes, which are the sounds, correspondences. And we need to build that to automaticity so that kids aren't spending time thinking about what sound a letter makes. Uh, and once we have that, we do need to have morphology instruction as part. This needs to be solid in order for fluency and reading comprehension to really be something that we can focus on. So our pre-service teachers need to understand this relationship and how to support the development for their students 
as well as identifying areas that they're struggling in. Then we need to make sure that our pre-service teachers have an understanding of how the structure of the language works. Working at, looking further into morphological awareness, and comprehension strategies, and having a better understanding of fluency and what to do with those students in the intermediate, middle school, high school grades that are struggling with reading. You can't just assume that because they don't have those comprehension skills, that they already have a solid foundation in the decoding skills. So I think we often fall on assuming too much of our students, especially in their older grades and not digging down to the core problem. When we look at professional development, we need to make sure that it's targeting one specific skill because realistically in a day long seminar, you're not gonna have the opportunity to support this. And we can't cover all of this in a day to a point that the teacher is going to be able to go and take it and use it. So you can have ones that are focused on theory or focused on the beginning of phonological awareness, phonemic awareness, but we need to create a systematic way. And I believe in the recommendations, they talked about accredited courses that explicitly teach this stuff to teachers. And we need to make sure that that's available as soon as possible. Yeah, I, I, I would love to see a course on just the research itself on how do we know what we know. And then I'd love to see uh, two courses on the foundational knowledge that teachers need to actually mm -hmm. teach this stuff. Um, I, I want to make a caveat to what you, what you and I have been saying about morphology, because we both kind of agreed that we think phonics and phonemic awareness is more important. Um, and because someone, I'm someone's Twitter is going to watch this and they're going to immediately try and call me out for this. Side. I just want to make this caveat. The research um, does show that morphology instruction really does work well in primary, um, although there is limited research in this area. But the research that does exist shows really high results. That being said, I think both Catherine and or Dr. Catherine and I would agree there's rationalistic reasons to delay uh, that morphology instruction until after the students have their phonological and um, phonemic awareness knowledge more in place. But um, I'm, I'm pers a person I'm open to changing my mind on this issue. I just, I need to see more research to become fully convinced. Um, but hey, I just wanted to make that caveat. So no one's trying to, to think I'm misconstruing or misrepresenting the research. Yes, and you know, I, I do feel that morphological awareness does have its place in the classroom. Seriously. My problem with saying it's the best way to go from the start is it because it requires so much additional teacher knowledge. And in that situation, when we're, we're trying to get teachers there, I think that's too much of an ask on the majority of teachers to have that steep learning curve to implement it in their classroom. And while in an ideal world, teachers could spend their entire summer learning about morphological awareness, I don't think it's very realistic to put that explanation on them. Yeah. Expectation I, on them. It is a very, it's extremely interesting, very mm -hmm. enjoyable. And the connections that you make are great, but 
It's something that a teacher has to want to do and have the time to put into it as well as the resources. Yeah. Uh, I think I, I could spend an hour just talking about the research on this. I'm going to close my mouth now. My caveat is made. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Nate. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And the replay for this will be available on the Right to Read Initiative website. And we are making these available as podcasts on the Right to Read podcasts. So thank you so much and have a great day.